Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that Lakshman Achuthan joins us now, Economic Cycle Research co-founder. Lakshman, where are we? It's so hard to keep up at the moment sure with this is. trade dispute. It sure is. And I think you you, you did a good uh, recap of the last uh, few days. But um, this has been going on since, uh, obviously, the trade war, I think, erupted in the spring. Uh, 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 so that's been uh, spring of last year. So that's that's we've been trending down and down and down. What we see from the cycle work, which is particularly interesting, is that the global <clears throat> industrial downturn predated the eruption of the trade war. So it's really a one-two punch. One takeaway is that if we waved a magic wand or a magic tweet and it was all gone tomorrow or today, you'd still have a global cyclical downturn. That's one thing to take away. The second is that the longer a slowdown, you know, and, and the sharper a slowdown becomes, we begin to move toward what we call a recessionary window of vulnerability, where a negative shock of whatever, you know, who knows, uh, a quarter or two ago that was not a recessionary shock mm-hmm. becomes something that could easily yeah. tip you into recession. That's the key thing to watch for. We protect the copyright of all of our guests. Everybody wants Lachman Achathon's research. We're not going to give it to you. Get it <laughs> from the Economic Cycle Research Institute. And John, I say that because on page four is the mother of all charts on China. Lachman, it is the single best chart oh, the of belt. the Rust Belt Depression. Is yeah. that too strong well, a you, word? Look, it's something's very, very different. It happened around 2014. Uh, you began a structural shift where the Rust Belt, the north-northeast of uh, Chinese provinces, uh, began experiencing uh, negative uh, IP growth. And this is a really big deal uh, yeah. for the Chinese economy. Now, if you take that structural shift and layer into it the global industrial downturn, which predated the trade war, yeah. uh, you can imagine things get worse. So back in Q1, when everybody was getting happy, about a trillion plus of Chinese stimulus that was getting pushed out, to, it was going to save the day. Well, a lot of it fell into this hole that we call the Chinese Rust Belt, shoring up state-owned enterprises where you were having uh, job losses, and that's a no-no in China, uh, and really shoring up zombie companies' capacity, which is in turn pushing out disinflationary impulses around the world once again. And so it all wraps into, first, you have to know where you are in the cycle in China and to see what's going on, and and the downturn's not over. Second, it really plugs into the rest of the world, and and it's having huge impacts, uh, as you know, on rates, which we started the the discussion about. So the trade war has exacerbated some of the existing problems going into spring of last year. We need to talk about the forces that predate the downturn, and that's the deleveraging cycle, the deleveraging push in China. Just where are we with that right now, Lakshman? What's on happened hold. with that? <laughs> I don't, it's not. I. I don't. There's not a big push on that, uh, uh, given the circumstances, right? When you're in a global industrial downturn, uh, and on top of that, uh, you throw the trade war, uh, you actually have the opposite. You're going to have. Uh, let's start tapping the gas, and each economy and the policymakers are set up differently. Chinese will do it their way. 
and Europeans have already promised uh, that there's more to come. And you know the debate that's going on here in the States. We do. Uh, and the Japanese will do what they've done. And it's interesting to see that part of what they've done in their, in their playbook is actually go out and buy equity ETFs. <laughs> so um, past is prologue. Well, let's pick up that line, the Chinese will do it their way. There was one way that the Chinese used to do it. It was just a load of stimulus, pump yeah. a load of credit into yeah, the system. Yeah, yeah. The last year has been different. It's been targeted. It's been incremental. Do you see it staying that way? Well, look, I mean, these grand experiments is what we call them, right? The Chinese, in the, after the global financial crisis, poured more concrete in three years than we did, in the, the U.S. did in the entire 20th century. All right, that's an experiment. Uh, then you have uh, Mr. Draghi say, whatever it takes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. You have uh, Abhinav. The three hours arrows of Abenomics, uh, which include uh, it, it, these days uh, equity ETFs, and then you have the United States, where we're at ZERP and QE and Qternity and maybe even NERP, and what? that. NERP, uh, negative uh, ZERP and NERP. NERP. Zero, and then you go to NERP. After ZERP is NERP. And and that's, I think that's the rub. That's where Dudley's coming from. He doesn't want to go there, and he's trying to, by hook or by crook, do all kinds of stuff, which is uh, really blowing up the the game board. To your point, and you sound like David Fulkerslander, Lachmanachathan, thank you so much for joining us. Too short a visit uh, uh, this morning. Bond legend Dan Fuss joins us now, Loomis Sales Vice Chairman and Portfolio Manager. Dan, I want to talk about what traditionally we would use certain asset classes for and how that's changed over the last year or so. Dan, typically we would go to fixed income for income, for yield. You would go to equities for capital returns. Something's changed this year, Dan. What do you think about it? (laughs) Well, uh, it is unique in my experience which runs back to the late 50s. Um, interest rates are just very, very, very low. Um, and yet, uh, we say that here in the U.S., and so we say, okay, we'll go to Europe or Japan. No, nope, they're lower. In fact, they're negative. So that doesn't do any good. Uh, so you have to go offshore. Or here back in the U.S., you say, well, I'm going to go down the quality scale. You go down the quality scale, and you very quickly determine, oh, we're not getting paid for the risk. You know, the chance of loss due to a rearrangement of the financials by the company or you're borrowing the debt. Uh, You look at that and you say, well, that cost on average uh, is a little bit beyond what the total return would be if there was no cost. So that's a bad deal. And you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs saying, well, I better go uh, see if I can open a Starbucks or something. And and then you find inefficiencies, we call them, in other words, oddball things, around the edges. But they're small. uh, They're basically neglected. uh, And once you buy them, boy, you own them. Uh, and uh, and they don't give you that much extra return. So it's a conundrum, really. Uh, if you were lucky enough to have some really, really long maturities uh, a year ago, or more appropriately, say the 1st of November, then you're looking at it and say, well, I've had a good total return, but 
when I reinvest, I'm getting much lower ones. So if you're running any kind of strategy that says, oh, okay, we're going to match our liabilities, for example, and you use a number based on the current rate at that time and you go forward, you're hoping the bond market will collapse. Well, what's happened is it's gone straight up. And the bid for dollar bonds, dollar-based bonds, is still very strong. Money's coming to this country from elsewhere. And there is a push, push, push for yield. Now, how long will this go on? I really don't know. What I do know is we have a very difficult situation in the relationship uh, between the U.S. and China called the trade war and all the implications of that um, are are serious stuff. Uh, And so money in Asia has every incentive to, if they can, and if it works for them, to leave. Where do they head? They head here. Uh, So, uh, and I I understand it. Uh, John, bring bring another question in here. So you're saying, Dan, the, the, the rally in U.S. fixed income may only just be starting. We've had a massive month for investment grade credit, for instance. We've seen treasuries come down from 185 to around 150. You think this is just the beginning, Dan? I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, based on our own history, if rates right. go lower, it's not good. Uh, you know, Bill, uh, Bill Dudley's comments the other day, for example, uh, uh, voiced a frustration that's out there saying, uh, hey, uh, this right. thing's gone too far. Uh, and uh, it's yeah. now his way of dealing with it. Uh, wouldn't work with the way the Fed is structured and its okay. mandate, but um, the uh, it is so. To the degree, uh, if if one thing happens, if the one thing that happens is that for some reason, one way or another, mm-hmm. the trade war uh, risk or reality because right. it's here, if that mm-hmm. scales down. Then I would say, okay, uh, we are now experiencing the bottom okay. rates. Dan, Dan, uh, just if it continues, the, go ahead. Dan, just because of time, I want to get to this. Sir John Templeton talked once. Uh, he's one of the few people I'd measure with you, Dan Fuss. Sir John once said there'll be a shortage of bonds. The new thing on the block is a 50 and 100 year piece. I mean, I know you bought all of the Austrian 100-year, Dan, so you could bring it in a couple years from now. Dan Fuss, on the duration of a 50-year American piece, is that a good for American finance and good for American bondholders? I don't think it's good for the Treasury at this moment. Um because um, they've got a smooth running pattern right now in the markets. You you can argue uh, successfully. You can make a strong argument saying, hey, look, if we can do, uh, if we can issue a 50-year right. and a 100-year at, say, 20 and 20 over, so a total of 40 base points over from, from the 30, uh, we we ought to do it. It makes sense with the, our 
our forecast for treasury borrowing is enormous. Right. D- we Dan- ought to do as much of that as we can. Okay. However, just because of time, Dan, I want to get this in. It's so important that youngster Margie Patel uh, appeared with John <laughs> Farrow here uh, recently. And Margie was really talking about dividend growth being a proxy for John Farrow's world of the real yield. Is dividend growth the new Danfuss model? Uh, somebody's been talking to you. Uh, yes, <laughs> it is. Uh, it is. Uh, now, you can't do that in most bond accounts beyond a certain amount. Uh, but that is the way you go right now. Yeah. And you have to be very, very, very careful. It doesn't fit the pattern uh, for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, a life company can't do it with their reserves, for example. Exactly. Um, a lot of the pension funds can't do that, and yeah. especially managers. But it makes more sense if you have yeah. – Depends on the regional distribution of the company's business, and it depends on the business okay. that they're in. Dan, I got one more question. I got thirty seconds. You're the only one in America qualified this U Market grad. Can Senator Warren of your liberal Commonwealth of Massachusetts? Can Senator Warren take Wisconsin if she's a presidential candidate for the Democrats? Uh, probably not. Okay, there we go. Dan Fuss, thank hey, you Dan, so much. Hey, Dan, always great to listen to you. Dan Fuss there, Loomis Sales Vice Chairman and Portfolio Manager. We can also talk about the politics in the UK as well. Brexit. Really pleased to say that Simon Usherwood joins us now, the UK and a changing Europe deputy director. Simon, great to have you with us. I want to ask you a quick question, and it's something that I heard this morning about the October 31st deadline. Is it possible that the EU could just withdraw the deadline itself without agreement from the British government? Uh, No. It can't. It has to have the agreement of the UK. Uh, or everybody has to, to agree on a, a date. So uh, it, it's not a unilateral power the, the EU has. Because, Simon, the reason I asked that is there was some talk of that earlier this morning. A lot of people trying to work out how either side could avoid a no-deal Brexit and take away the credible threat that the Prime Minister so desperately wants that the UK is willing to leave without a deal. Just what are the mechanisms available to the people that want to prevent no-deal, Simon? Well, this, I think, is really one of the problems, uh, that it's uh, clear that Parliament doesn't want to to leave with a no deal, but uh, that's a negative, and that's the default that will happen at the end of October. So either uh, Parliament has to agree to a deal, which it's rejected in the form that uh, uh, Theresa May negotiated, or it has to uh, ask for an extension, which uh, needs the approval of the EU, or it has to decide that it doesn't want to leave at all. And all of those options are just as problematic in their own way as the no-deal option. And uh, this, I think, is why we're in the, 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 the mess that we're in. So, Simon, as you look at the mess at the moment, can you walk us through the process that is left to explore for the British government and the EU between now and October 31st? Well, it's, uh, actually, this 
process that's been there for for a long time. The government says that it doesn't like the deal that uh, was negotiated by uh, Theresa May. It wants changes to the arrangements for Northern Ireland, the backstop arrangements. It wants some other changes too, but it isn't advancing any uh, proposals and the EU doesn't see why it its job to come up with a solution to the UK's problems. So we're seeing the start of talks uh, between the UK and the EU uh, from next week, but very low level and nothing really of substance. Um, But it's also about that uh, clash between government and parliament that I think is going to take centre stage in the coming uh, days and weeks. Simon, we love having you and Catherine Barnard on. I mean, it's a much more measured view than we get from the usual pick a side, believe, remain on uh, Brexit in as well what has been the response of a public removed from the newspaper wars of london i mean if if i say the last four days or whatever in in england has been extraordinary is the public fired up by this or is it just brexit exhaustion I think it's just Brexit exhaustion. Most people are sick and tired talking about Brexit. I know that a lot of your listeners, uh, you know, have uh, really clear interests and, you know, mm-hmm. business interests that are strongly affected by Brexit. But for most people, this is just a pain in the neck. You know, all they hear are politicians arguing, uh, blaming each other. Right. Uh, everyone's at fault. And I, I think that's uh, what you're seeing is that a lot of people say, okay, okay we're not really happy about what's happening with uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, suspending parliament, but we really want somebody to make a decision just so we can talk about other stuff that's also important. Well, I got to impress John Farrell now with my knowledge, Simon. I mean, 1997, Sir John Major does a proroger or whatever it's called, and (laughs) Tony Blair wins out of the blue. Is that that what we're going to head for here is a, a, a major to Blair transition? No, not clearly not. I nailed that. Yes. Because we're not even clear that this all leads to a general election. Uh, I think opponents in Parliament want to to stop a no deal, but how they stop that no deal is something they haven't agreed on. And I think this weekend you're seeing a lot of frenzied activity. Some people talking about maybe we can pass some legislation that means the government has to ask for an extension. Other people saying, well, we just got to bring this government down. We've got to have a vote of no confidence and try and move to a general election. But as the poll stands, and you know, going back to your previous uh, uh, headline about the uh, potential for the, the Republicans to lose control of the Senate, uh, it's not clear what would happen in the general election here in the UK. A lot of people say general election would solve the problem. We'd you know, get a, a new government in place. But at the moment, parties are running close enough that nobody can have confidence that they will win a, a clear victory. Hey, Simon, it's great to catch up and to get some clarity on a really nuanced debate right now without the political bias. Simon Usherwood there, the UK and a Changing Europe Deputy Director. John, let us stick with the American economy uh, in the data and particularly income spending, the future of consumption. And we can do that with Sarah House of Wells Fargo. Sarah, we've been talking vectors all morning. What is the vector of the American consumer right now? Is, it a, is there a stability to it or is there a presumption of a consumption slowdown? 
Well, I think we are expecting a consumption slowdown, just especially when you compare it to the second quarter and even the start that we've had to Q3. Just looking at, you know, even the difference we saw today between spending and income. So that gap isn't sustainable. But when we look at just the overall path of, of income growth, so real disposable income is, is still growing somewhere around 2.5%. And so we think that consumers can continue to spend somewhere, you know, at least a little above 2% in the coming quarter. So overall, still looking pretty good on the consumer front. Sarah, let's get September started. When we come back after a long weekend on Wall Street, Tuesday, we will get manufacturing PMI and the ISMs for manufacturing as well. Last week, we had that contraction, that 49.9 read on US manufacturing. Sarah, are we set to see a repeat of that? And do you expect to see that pronounced slowdown confirmed in the ISMs? Well, we think we'll probably get a little bit of a slip in the ISM manufacturing index, but it can stay above 50. And that's in part based on what we've been seeing in some of the regional Fed PMIs. So they actually held up pretty well in, in August, especially when you convert them to an ISM basis rather than just that that headline number that, that we get. But I think that the market number was, was certainly a warning that we're still yeah. seeing a lot of downward pressure on, on the manufacturing sector here in the here in the U.S. With the Sarah House at Wells Fargo and the problem with Sarah House is she wrote a memo here that we actually have to read every word of because it's the heart of the matter. Tariffs becoming evident in CPI. Okay, fine, but what part of CPI? Are tariffs a goods inflation change or can they actually adjust the service sector inflation that 99.825 of our listeners feel is crushing them? Yeah, so I think we we are seeing it a little bit in terms of the inflation numbers, but you do have to look pretty pretty deeply to see it. So um, we've seen it in a number of certain components, things like you know furniture, um, but that's less than one percent of of the overall CPI. No, 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 no. What do you see, what so, do you see? No, no. What are you <laughs> seeing in inflation of back to school textbooks? <laughs> Well, we have seen, um, you know, that uh, books are, are one of the things that is coming in uh, under the under the thumb of, of tariffs. And so that oh, really? some, some upward pressure on there. Yeah. So that's coming up in, in the upcoming round. That's what uh, the, the upcoming round with dad, right? Do you that's know what like I love tariff? about you, Tom, what? sometimes is that you can ask anything and people take it seriously. <laughs> they do. I mean, what about what about the tariff of a summer haircut when you have to line the cherubs up? Do you know what the inflation rate is on the end of summer haircut? Not not on the haircut, but I'd still say we're we're seeing a you know the, it's going to be a, a while bef- if at all before the tariffs would actually start John, to services. So the, are you about to ask me about the summer haircut? No, I'm going to ask you about the summer haircut. <laughs> no, sure. John, but seriously, <laughs> John, this is a conversation for September and December. Is a service sector inflation dynamic? And Sarah, the next round of tariffs set to hit the consumer. Just how real will it start to feel? for the consumer in America in the coming months? I think it's going to take some some time to, to feed through. So, uh, if, you know, if you think about inventories, a lot of the, the inventories uh, um, that consumers will be buying, you know, purchasing, they're already here stateside. And so I think it's probably going to be more of a of an early 2020 phenomenon when companies are, are actually being being forced to adjust prices. They'll probably take a little bit on the margin, too. Yeah. But we are going to see some okay. of it passed on eventually. Sarah, thanks so much. I mean, this has been good. Good G-O-D-D-E in Annan, seventh grade. 
differential equations of linear algebra, $167 that doing that seven in seventh sets. grade? Afterthought is doing Diffie Q in seventh grade. You think they're pushing them a little too fast? I think they $167.07. Are you Good upset about your back-to-school costs? Oh, I can, I can feel it. Michael Barr, remember when back-to-school costs was a lunchbox? You either got Zorro or you got the Jetsons? I had the Kung Fu lunchbox. You had the Kung Fu lunchbox. Yes. And a pencil case. Now, that was it. I did. Yeah, exactly. And a pencil case. Now, like the chemistry fee alone? Yeah. You know, afterthought turns to me, she goes, do I really have to carry Morrison and Boyd to school? It's like 400 pages. I said, you're not doing that. What school is she going to? This sounds it's, ridiculous. It's, it's like, a, you know, it's a magnet school or something. It's like, a, you know, fancy Did school. we thank Sarah House? Sarah House, we should thank Wells thank Fargo. Thank you, Sarah House. Really important. <laughs> Seriously, folks, Wells Fargo. Just in case really, she's hanging out. Really important <laughs> note on the consumer <laughs> price index. This is a real treat. We've had an exceptional August, wonderful guests on this end of summer broadcast, and we are thrilled now to bring you James Stravitas, Admiral Stravitas, of course, uh, for years with Carlisle and coming to us from Jacksonville, uh, Florida today. Uh, Admiral, I want to make this a celebration, not only of a book that's out in three or four days, but I want to celebrate the single book that I would recommend people get to begin their autumn strong. It's a book you throw at your older kids and say, here, look at this. Just pick one book. It is the Stravitas book, The Leader's Bookshelf. And in it is Jim Mattis. James Stravitas, tell us how Jim Mattis comes to your wonderful book on 50 books, The Leader's Bookshelf. Well, I've known uh, General Mattis since he was a one-star, Tom, and I was just below him as a Navy captain in the Pentagon, and he and I trade book recommendations. So we both have thousands of books in our personal libraries. And, and that friendship and that exchange of ideas about new books to read uh, cemented our lives together. And then we served all over the world in combat assignments together. And as I started to put the book together, I knew I wanted Jim Mattis's uh, wisdom in the book. And, of course, General Mattis has a new book out himself as well. I'll say he has a new book out listed on Amazon just directly as a number one bestseller issued September 3. And, of course, with the Wall Street Journal splash, uh, the other sign, call sign chaos, learning to lead. And he really doesn't mince any words. It's about a lifelong reading and a lifelong study. Fold history into the look back into how one learns to lead. Um, I'm going to start with Winston Churchill, whose magisterial uh, six-volume work on the Second World War, entitled The Second World War, shows how a leader builds teams, uh, works with civil-military divide, and also is a strategic thinker. I'll also throw out the Killer Angels about the uh, generals who led the United States in the Civil War. No good leader, Tom is not a reader everyone who wants to lead has to okay well let's go let's go there uh, you know in the autumnaling and coming off of another hot summer as was witnessed at gettysburg the sharma book on killer angels is extraordinary and it had the courage to completely reframe robert e lee against the struggle 
that Mr. Longstreet had beneath the general. How did Longstreet lead given the challenges Robert E. Lee gave him? Um, He, in turn, Longstreet, turned to his subordinates and built them into a team, a band of brothers, the way Tom, uh, Lord Nelson, the great British admiral, uh, built his teams together uh, in facing the Battle of Trafalgar against Napoleon. These were existential conflicts. Um, The common thread, both of Longstreet and Lord Nelson, was that ability to build teams that could withstand the chaos of combat. Uh, with us, James Trevitas, Admiral, and of course, his work with Tufts University and the Fletcher School and uh, with Carlisle uh, Group as well. Rolling it out right now this week, Admiral, a new CNO. What does Michael Gilday do to start strong at Navy? How do you, you know, within all the politics of any operation, any corporation, any small business, there's a point where there's day one. What does a CNO do day one? You know, I, this makes me recall my own time as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, Tom, and the advice uh, I've given Admiral Gilday, who's someone I've known for 30 years and have mentored, is you've got to lead from the inside out. And what that means is you begin by building that internal team around you, then you move out into the rest of the Pentagon, working with the other services, then you move outside the building to Capitol Hill, and then you're in the inner agency. You've got to Build that foundation on the inside and take it out. And the second thing Admiral Gilday must do is deal with the, the character challenges that we're seeing in the Navy today. We have our special operations SEALs in disarray, our Navy legal community in disarray. Our surface line has had collisions. Well, l- let me interrupt you, Admiral. How did we get there? Did we get there because of war exhaustion and under-budgeting? Those are two elements. One is resources. And the other one is indeed the op tempo on our ships, how, how much we deploy them. But a third very important factor, Tom, is the ethos of leadership and character, two different things, has eroded in the Navy over the last Why did that happen? Um, it's, I think part of it is the way society has changed. We've become much more focused on external and less focused on internal. Character is leading yourself. That's why I wrote the book that'll be out shortly, Sailing True North, 10 Admirals of the Voyage of Character, to look at those internal uh, mechanisms yeah. that help us then be better leaders externally. Do you see, Paul Sweeney, how the Admiral got in the forward book plug there? Yes, I it's did. It's amazing how <laughs> Mattis, Jim Mattis, if we, we hope I'm to get highly General... trained. <laughs> we, we, we hope General Mattis can find time to join. Mattis would not have done that. No, you'd expect that from a Navy. You'd expect that from a Navy person, strategically as well. Okay, Jim Mattis with an important new book coming out on uh, ten admirals as well. Jim Mattis, let us speak to Europe and NATO. There seems to be almost a generational change in Europe. Chancellor Merkel is now fourteen years on. Mr. Macron is trying to do his part after Beiritsen, and and all of that. We've moved on from Conrad Adenauer. We've moved on generationally to something new. What does the new Europe look like to the former Supreme Commander of NATO? Unfortunately, what I see are enormous centrifugal forces that are pulling the place apart. Most obviously, Brexit to the north. It's going to happen. I'd say it's a two and three chance. It's a crash out at this point. To the uh, east, it's Poland and Hungary pulling away from uh, the central tenants of Brussels to the south. It's an Italian economy 
in disarray right alongside the normal Italian disarray politically. And, and to the West, the United States is just less engaged mm. in Europe. Those centrifugal forces, Tom, uh, are, are the worst thing for the United States. Uh, General Eisenhower, the first Supreme Allied commander, right. said correctly that um, a unified, free Europe is America's greatest strategic asset and partner. That is eroding in front of us. We ought to work harder to pull that together. James Trevitas, thank you so much. And I'm sure he'll agree with me. My book of the year so far, The British Are Coming, Rick Atkinson, on an extraordinary American military and politics of the Revolutionary War. Uh, Admiral Trevitas, formerly with Tufts and Carlisle, and from Jacksonville, Florida, at the Swing. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.